news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to all new episodes. We had a lovely July break and we rested up and rejuvenated and looking forward to the rest of the year spent with you. If you haven't yet submitted to Books with Hooks or if you have comp requests or anything for our Q&A, those lines are open again. So what are you waiting for? podcast listeners, we are getting so excited for our next virtual retreat. It's coming up September 24th and 25th, all online, and we can't wait to tell you about the great speakers we have lined up. I want to tell you about a few that I'm especially looking forward to. We have Matt Bell, How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts, absolutely gold, and a fave of the podcast and our last retreat, Courtney Mom, the author of The Year of the Horses. She's doing query letter writing 2.0. How to get an agent's attention in a competitive market. We also have excellent book coach, super talented author of self-care, and she's also a poet, Lee Steins. Write a memoir that will actually sell an introduction to Memoir Plus. Can't wait for you all to learn about what Memoir Plus means. All right, everybody, we will see you at the virtual retreat September 24th and 25th. Go to our website to sign up and we'll see you there. 
everyone welcome to a really special books with hooks today we have a special literary agent who's joining us on the show and i'll pass over to cc to introduce her as you all know we read white ivy by Susie yang for the books with hooks book club well today we have jenny ferrari adler from union literary who is Susie's agent Jenny obviously has very good taste because she was instrumental in bringing White Ivy into the world, and we're so happy she's here with us. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. Okay, so as per usual, we're going to dive right in. Carly, will you read us the first query letter? Dear Carly, Bianca, and Cece, I'm a longtime listener and appreciate all of the wisdom, advice, and practical tips you share on the podcast. The shit no one tells you about writing has been my GPS for this challenging writing journey fueling me with hope for the future. I would love your feedback on my query in first pages. You're to Blame is a dual POV rom-com complete at 76,000 words. It's a gender-swapped You've Got Mail at the local school board and will appeal to readers who love the witty enemies-to-lovers banter of Rachel Lynn Solomon's The X-Talk mixed with The Search for Identity and Lasting Love of Uzma Jalaluddin's Hannah Khan Carries On. When 37-year-old architect Charlotte Charlie Maxwell is appointed to her local school board. She sees an opportunity to help struggling students, especially teens who aged out of the foster care like she did. But when Charlotte proposes a new academic testing policy, she draws the ire of hopeless romantic Theo Lopez, the favorite teacher of Charlotte's neurodiverse son, Gabriel. After dozens of heated emails and open letters, Theo arrives at the next school board meeting, ready to verbally spar. But uh uh-oh, Charlie isn't the pasty old guy Theo thought he was emailing, thanks to a mislabeled school board picture. She's the cautious widowed mom he bumped into at his school's community service day, the woman he's traded flirty texts and dead poet society quotes with for weeks. Forced to work together after their embarrassing public blow-up, both Charlotte and Theo continue to deny their mutual attraction, even as the testing policy and funding for Theo's popular poetry seminar hang in the balance. When a former foster sibling forces Charlotte to revisit her painful past, she finds comfort and acceptance in the most unlikely of places, Theo. That is until a special election is called for Charlotte's school board seat, and they're on opposite sides again, this time as nonpartisan candidates. As their entire historic small town, including Gabriel, chooses a side, Charlotte realizes that to win the election, she might lose her heart. You're to Blame is inspired by my work as an education advocate and court-appointed volunteer guardian for youth and foster care and parenting a child with epilepsy. When I am not writing or working at an education nonprofit, you can find me leading the prompts and comps discussion on Twitter and playing hide and seek with our escape artist Black Lab through the Florida heat. My first five pages are attached, sincerely redacted. Awesome, Carly. Thanks so much for that. Okay, why don't you tell us of what you thought of that query letter? All right. As always, we love the, the nice words and we love all our super fans of the podcast. So thank you so much for, for being a fan and being a part of this. Okay. So I I really like the title. You're to blame. I don't know. I thought that was a, a really cute uh, title. The word count is on point. I like the kind of the gender swap part and the comps are really modern and fun. And so we, we like that. So the one part that I wasn't sure about in terms of the organization in the third paragraph. So it says, she draws the ire of hopeless romantic Theo Lopez. And I felt like you were kind of forcing that in. Like, I also want to tell you that all this plot's going on, but he's also hopeless romantic. But I felt like that romantic part had nothing to do with the kind of ire of this of this situation. So the messaging felt a little mixed there. So I would just take out the hopeless romantic part there. And that's something we'll obviously learn about him as a character. Or find another way to kind of get that in. But then later on, you say they traded flirty texts and all that sort of stuff. So I, I just don't think we need that hopeless romantic part there. But if you want to move it down, um, 
I think that's I think that's great. I really love the like they thought he was going to be like, verbally sparring with this old dude named Charlie. I just absolutely like I can just picture it so cinematic, right? That that moment where it's like he figures out that Charlie is actually Charlotte. And anyway, I just thought I think I think that's going to be a really, really fun scene. All right. So then at the end here, we have a lot of body content. We have one, two, three, four, which normally be like one. So this is a little long, but, but we'll forgive you because there's a lot going on here. So at the end here, it says until a special election is called for the school board seat and they're on opposite sides again, this time as nonpartisan candidates. I would really like it if you just spelled out that they are going to be battling each other for the seat. I just felt like either they're not or you're not wording it in a way that like I can actually understand that they're both battling for the seat because it would be better if they are battling for the seat and then having again their own ambitions their own stakes for why they do or don't want that seat so really I would just spell it out like they're fighting for the same seat I would I would just make that super duper duper clear and I thought the last line of the body paragraph was great you know Charlotte realizes that to win the election she might lose her heart I thought that was a sweet little rom-com bit there but yeah I think we we got the rom covered we got the calm covered and I think this is this is going to be fun and I think the, the author bio paragraph was great too. Awesome, Carly. Jenny, was there anything you wanted to add to that? Yes. I mean, I agree with a lot of that. And I agree, like, I mean, I think the opening and closing were really good. I had some small thoughts. I thought... I thought there could be a little more specificity throughout, like neurodiverse. I kind of wondered what specifically was going on with her son. And like, when it says it's a historic small town, I was sort of curious, just like, what town? Or like, where are we in the, in the world? And I also, you know, it's funny, I've kind of been stumbling over the you've got mail comp, like, I understand to think about it for a while, because like, I understand it, because part of the plot of you've got mail is that they are corresponding and don't realize it. But I guess when I think of that movie, I, th- I think of it more as like the small bookstore owner, and then like the big, bad, big bookstore. Owner. So so I feel like I don't know. So the comp for me much as I love You've Got Mail, I feel like I, I got a little confused by it and then I had to like do a lot of work to figure it out. So I think I might take that out and just explain that they are, you know, essentially don't realize they're emailing each other. And I, But I did like the other comps. I like the enemies to lovers banter. And then I did think with like those sort of plot paragraphs that they could be a little bit more, they could be ordered a little clearer it took me, I had to sort of work to understand, you know, there's just a lot like, and some of it's more important than other parts. Like she's an architect, she's a former foster, you know, he's a romantic, like there's a lot of different things. So maybe just kind of paring that down. So it's easier to just get to like the bones of what's happening. But I thought it, it does sound very fun and different. Wonderful, Jenny. Thank you. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add? This seems like a lot of fun. And I want to understand how she like does she know that he is the author of the texts and then when she does figure it out or if she already knew is she super disappointed that he has a different stance than she does in the political side of it it just seems like a lot of fun and i don't want the answer in the query letter this is just me sharing like i want to find out so thank you so much for sharing this letter with us wonderful cc thank you okay carly will you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages so we actually we do get a location um saint augustine florida so we know where we are now okay so we are we know that it is going to be community service day at the school so we have gabriel telling his mom to kind of like get it together you know we got to get to school and 
we we are quickly we quickly understand that she's a single mom, which is great, and we quickly get some information about her not knowing her heritage because there was a note about bringing Spanish food versus you know Hungarian food or whatever like you know food for the heritage day. So we understand okay, she's a single mom, and we know that she's adopted. She doesn't know much about her heritage, which is great. So then we get to to the school, and they almost put on the same pair of shoes, and then Gabriel had to like change his shoes, so he's like not embarrassed by his mom, which I thought was a great little note. And yeah. So they're, we're at the school and right away the mom, because she's an architect, is noticing some like cinder block issues and some structural issues with actual buildings. So she's like very focused on that. Um, and Gabe is just really, quite, really quite embarrassed by his mother, which is just, you know, typical, typical teen stuff. And so that's our community day opening scene. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, could you tell us how you thought those opening pages fed? All right. So I I did really like how seamless some of this information was was woven in. So, you know, right away in the second paragraph, it says, you know, I've been on my own for far too long to begin asking for help now. You know, for example, like conveying that she's a single mom. And then the next bit that I really liked was about the foster parent, you know, my favorite foster mother was a Caligaris and she, she didn't get the chance to give me her last name. It felt right to adopt her heritage, right? And so right away, we're getting the single mom, this heritage stuff. So I just thought all of that was really easily and nicely woven in. And, you know, understanding that she is an architect, we get that right off of the bat, but it's told in a really interesting way. It says, Principal Mortham, and like all the teachers, even the lunch lady knows your name, he says, squirming in his seat. No, I want to say. They know Charlie Maxwell, the architect and school board member. They know the nickname I use so that I don't lose business to the good old boys network with so many proposals submitted by email most new clients have no idea i'm a woman until our first meeting so again planting the seed for this like cinematic moment to come so i just thought you know there's just such a tendency for authors to want to kind of you know do the info dumps you know give us all the telling but i think this was a really good job of showing and not telling and also the fact that she is widowed, we find out. So we, you know, again, we know that she's a single mom, but we don't know how. It says, I certainly fixated on what it would be like to be married to my college sweetheart for 25 years instead of being widowed for six. So, you know, all of these, all of these nice details woven in really seamlessly. And I like that she's just a character that just like gets to work, right? She's at the school and she's like right away, she's noticing these cinder block issues. She says, he's right, the wall is crap, especially where it hasn't been reinforced to sustain the torrential downpours common in Southeast Florida. One student stomping on the upper edge of the wall could send a layer of cinder block crashing forward. And this isn't the only instance. Exterior retaining walls, sectioning off playgrounds, lunch spaces are crumbling at at least 12 schools. The school board has little recourse but to pay for the repair. So it's just, it's again, setting up the stakes for like why it matters that she gets this, this seat, the school board seat coming up. So all in all, I, I was smitten with it. I thought it was really sweet. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Jenny, did you have any thoughts you wanted to add to that? Off the top of my head, like I do remember stumbling a little bit over the like Cologeras was not a familiar term to me. So that was one small thing. No, but I don't, know really, I don't think I really did to the pages. Wonderful. Cece, mm-hmm. anything you want to add? I really enjoyed. I just want to echo what Carly said about weaving in backstory seamlessly. If anyone has ever gotten the note from us saying, don't explain, entertain, go read these five pages because she does it perfectly in every instance. And there's like three or four times where I was highlighting going, this is perfect. This is perfect. And now I'm curious. So, so it's really, really good. One thought I had is, you know, what if he hid it from her? Like, what if the son hid from his mom that she was supposed to join in? Like, what if he told her it's, it's, it's heritage day, but like, all I'm supposed to do is bring something. Parents aren't coming. And then she found out that parents were supposed to come because I kept wanting surprise. You know me, right? Like I want disruption. I want surprise. Not that you need anything because this is really good. But I still was like, 
hmm, how can we make this even more juicy? So just something to think about. I think it's absolutely excellent. And I would also change the first line. I would make the last line of the first paragraph, these are the situations my therapist warned me about, the first line of the whole thing, because it's, it's far superior to the current first line. So that is it. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, Jenny, will you read us the second query letter? Yes. Dear Jenny, thank you for coming on The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, by far my favorite writing podcast. I am a fan of White Ivy and How to Be Eaten and would love your feedback on my query letter and opening pages. Kate Green is a TikTok star, is 75,000 word women's fiction that is the story of a middle-aged professional mother of two who unintentionally becomes a TikTok star. Think Kate Stamen London's One to Watch meets Diane Johnson's Lorna Mott Comes Home with complex family dynamics that will appeal to fans of Ann Tyler and Emma Stroud. Ever since Kate's father went through a very public bankruptcy when Kate was a teenager, Kate has been obsessed with money. Now a successful and high-profile financial planner, Kate has spent the last few years documenting her path to financial independence on her social media outlets, proving to her community that she is not her father. On the day she achieves her dream of retiring from traditional work, she learns that her husband has been secretly incurring loans and misusing their savings, jeopardizing her goals. Because of Kate's family history and her public persona, his financial infidelity is the ultimate deception. Shortly after learning of his deceit, Kate is with a friend letting off steam about her husband and her difficult teenage daughter, and they post a TikTok video of Kate that quickly goes viral. When the video leads to the opportunity for Kate to travel to a TikTok content house several states away, she jumps at the chance, putting off dealing with her situation at home. While she is at the content house, her relationships with her husband and daughter continue to unravel while she navigates the world of social media influencers half her age. When one of the influencers posts embarrassing footage of Kate, she realizes that the life she carefully constructed is not going to come to fruition and must face the fact that she has sacrificed her relationships to her personal agenda and her public image. She must decide what is truly important and what is worth saving. By day, I work as an attorney in Redacted, where I live with my husband and two children. I am completing my certificate in creative writing at UCLA, where Kate Green is a TikTok star, was a 2022 semifinalist for the Allegra Johnson Prize in novel writing. My short fiction can be found in Quail Bell Review and Quill Keepers Press. I am a reader for the Master's Review and an active member of Women's Fiction Writers Association and Pen Parentis. When I am not reading or writing, you can find me running with my yellow lab or tending my herb garden. Thank you for your consideration. Wonderful, Jenny. Thank you so much. Okay, so now will you give us an indication of what you thought of the query letter? I like the opening paragraph. I like the title. Kate Green is a TikTok star. I did, you know, I have to, like, since How to Be Eaten which is a wonderful book by Maria Adelman. She mentions like it just published. I think part of me is like, did have you really read it? So sometimes I think, I don't know, if you can be, if, you, if she has really read it and there was maybe saying something specific would be helpful. And if you haven't read it, I would not say that you have, you know, but maybe she has, I hope so. She's a fan of White Ivy, which is great. I think the comps are really good. I personally never care about word count, although I think I'm probably alone in that. But like for me, unless it's a very short book or like a very long book, I don't, if it's just like a regular length book, I don't, I don't personally care. But I think it's a very strong first paragraph. The second paragraph, all about the money, is super interesting. Part of me almost wondered like if there was, if it was too, like, I'm trying to think of how to articulate it. 
it's so consistent in a way where it's like her father went through very public bankruptcy. So now she's like a super successful financial planner. And then she's about to retire and her husband has actually been doing a financial fidelity. Like, I don't know. It was like so consistent that I almost wondered if there should be some other texture or arrow. It's like pointing a different direction. But I liked it. And then, and it's interesting. It feels different to hear about financial infidelity. That's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And it makes sense that that would be very upsetting to her. And then the TikTok stuff, totally interesting. I was curious to know what the TikTok video was, like in brief, just kind of, is she dancing? Like, is she doing a parody? Just to get a little more of a sense of of who Kate is. I've never even heard of a TikTok content house, but I can kind of imagine what it is. And I think like dealing with social media influencers half her age sounds funny. And then when it says embarrassing footage of Kate, I guess that was another moment where I was like a little curious if it could be more specific, what kind of thing we're talking about. I like that sentence, she must decide what is truly important and what is worth saving. Like I might, I think there could be another sentence that is kind of about what's the themes of the book or like what's it really about. And then the bio, I think, is solid. I would just say there's something about, (laughs) this is so nitpicky, but like there's something about certificate and creative writing where I'm like, what's that? You know, usually here at MFA or something. So I might just say I'm studying creative writing at UCLA. And then it's great that it was a semifinalist for a prize. It's great that she's been published and that she's reading for a journal. And I thought, you know, the Yellow Lab Herb Garden was like charming. So I think it's, I think it's a solid query. Wonderful, Jenny. Thank you. And I do know a Kate Green who does listen to the podcast. So Kate, you're a TikTok star. Okay. So Carly, did you have anything you wanted to add there? Yeah, I wanted to chat about a few things. I feel like there is so many interesting layers here that just aren't being touched on. Like, I want to know how she feels about being a woman in a financial industry that's like dominated by men. I want to get into the ageism and the or potential ageism, you know, and her age being a woman at this creator house. It's all talked about so high level. And I understand it's a query letter, obviously, like the book is probably going to get into all of this. But I really wanted to know what we were challenging in terms of these like social structures, because I think that to me would be the most interesting part of the book. And again, I think we're getting to that. But somehow, I think I would just want to know more about how she is trying to challenge these, you know, challenge these expectations. Because I think this whole her father went through a public bankruptcy when she was a teenager, and now she's obsessed with money. Love that. But I think there's just so much that's like been built upon that in terms of her personality and who she is and who she like, how she attacks the world. And I also am not convinced, again, don't know this character at all. (laughs) But I'm not convinced that like, is she the type of woman that runs away? Because it's says you know she all this is going on she tries to navigate all this and like obviously gets an opportunity to go to this tiktok house and so is is it that she's prioritizing her career over everything else is it that she's running away like i just i don't know i just didn't get i just didn't buy it that maybe she's a woman that runs away i almost think it should be positioned as like she's choosing to like put her financial future above everything else and framing it that way to me would be a bit more interesting and layered because i don't know this is planting a lot of seeds for me i have a lot of feeling feelings about this one Wonderful, Carly. Cece, what did you want to add to that? Just one very quick note that the sentence that reads, while she is at the content house, her relationship with her husband and daughter continue to unravel. And I would try to make that a plot escalation as opposed to a plot continuation because you don't want the climax, which is the very last line of that paragraph, to seem too internal. You want there to be a scene in which she's either at a crossroads and has to you know, pick two things and with lots of pressure on both sides because this is very commercial. 
So I feel like it's probably there in your book. It's just about adding it to your query letter. And I loved the bit about the yellow lamp. So of course, I want to say baby. <laughs> Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. All right, Jenny, we're going to go back to you and ask you to please tell our listeners what's in those opening pages before we discuss the critique of them. So you get kind of like a glimpse into a typical morning, although it's also her 45th birthday. You get like a quick intro to the son, to her husband, and then she goes off to like a financial office where she's been hoping to be on the board and receives the news that because of problems in her financial history, she's not eligible to join. Amazing. Thank you. Will you give us your take on them? Sure. I mean, I liked the first sentence, the first minutes of age 45 smell like pancakes. I thought that was nice. You know, and it's very readable, sort of like easy, breezy, which I appreciated. I guess I, I did think some of the dialogue could be doing more work. You know, it feels very just like day in the life stuff. And I also wasn't, I don't know, like for, you know, I'm not sure. Like I didn't get that much of a sense of the son or the husband. So I think, I feel like there could be a little bit more work happening in the pages kind of layered in. And then with the financial office, I had a little bit of confusion about whether it was her office building or if it was just a meeting that she had set up. I wasn't like incredibly clear on like who Mitch was and how that related. And if I hadn't read the query, I don't know if I would have understood that what was happening is like this bombshell of your financial history isn't what you think it is. So maybe that could be a little clearer on the page. Wonderful, Jenny. Thank you. Cece, did you have anything you wanted to add? I do. So I, I enjoyed this. But one thing that I thought was missing was a sense of how she feels about her family as she's waking up in a more organic way. So I'll give you an example. I also agree with Jenny. Love the first sentence. Super cute. And, you know, you have her son running into the bedroom and saying, Mom, happy birthday. Come see what Dad did, right? And when she responds in a minute, give me a birthday hug, I was very clear that she wanted to cuddle with her son, which is super sweet. But, like, any woman – I'm saying woman because she's a woman, but really any person – Waking up on their 45th birthday, smelling pancakes, this is a great opportunity to get a glimpse into the dynamics of the family. Is she thinking to herself, oh my God, he's probably making a mess in the kitchen, you know? Is she just like so annoyed at his existence? Is that the state that her marriage is in? And the fact that he's making pancakes is making her roll her eyes internally? Or is she thinking to herself, oh, I wonder what romantic ace he has up his sleeve this this year, you know, because he's usually this guy who prepares these really cute things. It doesn't have to be anything big, but where is she on that spectrum? And this was a trend that this lack of information in a way that is conveyed through emotion was a trend in these pages, in my opinion. So when she sees the huge letters, honk, it's my birthday, across the length of the yard, all we get is the explanation we don't get a sense of like, my heart was, I don't know, warmed, or I'm not going to have the good language to describe it right now. But I didn't get a sense of, of how she felt about it. So I did a little bit when we got into dialogue, when she mentioned things like, usually I would complain about the expense and things like that. And I also got a little clue that he always cooks pancakes because there's a line that says the pancakes are delicious as always. 
So it's not that the author isn't doing it at all, but I don't think that you're doing it necessarily as fast as you should and in the moments that you should, because this isn't just about setting a scene where she is woken up by the smell of pancakes and with her son running in. This is also because we're in a book and we get to be inside someone's head about showing her perspective of what this means. How is this very, very personal to her? So that is what I felt was missing. And also, like, and to be fair, I don't think I can actually give you the second note with that much certainty, but I will just in case it applies. If she's going to be surprised by this credit card debt by a simple credit check, I don't buy it. Like, she is way too smart to not have checked her credit. I'm sorry. So I, I, maybe that's not how, what it is, because we, we got only half of that scene, or at least part of that scene. So, But I just want to say plausibility here. Like, I do not buy that a woman that is so financially conservative and such a baller when it comes to, like, saving money and being a good investor would not know what her credit score is. So just saying that. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to go to the last query letter, which is Cece's. Will you read that for us, please? Dear Cece, Carly, Bianca, and Jenny, Come Out, Come Out, Theory Fry is a dual, point-of-view, 80,000-word contemporary romance. The story follows the developing relationship between an anxious chocolate artist who has recently inherited the building in which she has always lived and worked, and a career-climbing, frequent-flyer real estate developer whose ultimate promotion hinges on him forcing her out. By way of comps, the female main character and Eleanor Oliphant could participate in the same PTSD support group. The fictional town could be located between Schitt's Creek and Stars Hollow, Gilmore Girls. The story's content could be in conversation with It Ends With Us. 36-year-old Joe Fredericks wants control over the family business. His father promises him the keys to the firm if he can convince one final holdout in the quirky town of Holmes to sell her property. But for 31-year-old Theory Fry, who is still recovering from a recent breakdown, Selling means giving up the building that houses her home, her chocolate shop, and all the childhood memories still tucked inside. To Theory, this building is priceless, and the two publicly square off. When Theory discovers a dead body buried in the backyard while digging for money she believes her grandmother left there, the police initiate an investigation and Joe's project stalls, grounding him in homes as his wife moves out of their New York City apartment. Despite Joe's dad's underhanded pressures on theory, the two bond over similar traumatic events from their past. They both witnessed the unexpected death of a caretaker. After Theory's golden boy long-term boyfriend slaps her at a party, the pair, each now newly single, forge a friendship that deepens to attraction. But when Theory receives a letter declaring eminent domain, clearly initiated by Joe's dad, she is pushed to the edge of another breakdown, and they must each decide what's more important, family legacy or new love. About me. Most recently, I have worked as a non-fiction ghostwriter with publications including Mommy Burnout, HarperCollins, and The Miracle Equation, Penguin Random House. My own nonfiction has been published in Parents and Success magazines, as well as online outlets, literary journals, and anthologies, including Brain, Child, Literary Mama, and The Healing Muse. I also penned pop culture biographies for Scholastic. As someone who lives with panic attacks, I am passionate about creating stories 
that depict the intricacies and range of emotional wellness, as well as the many shades of gray within relationships. Attached, you will find the first five pages of my manuscript. Thank you for this opportunity to get your first impressions of my submission materials, as well as your continued dedication to educating rising authors. Sincerely, Emily Klein. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, tell us what you thought of the query letter. All right, so... I just want to say that an anxious chocolate artist is basically me, except instead of artist, I am a chocolate eater. So that was like a lot of fun to read. It just seems like just a different profession. I love books in which the professions are like quirky and fun and different. So that's great. In terms of your comps, I, I do like what you did. I thought it was creative. I'm not sure every agent is going to like it, but I like the whole like Eleanor Oliphant and my main character could be a part of the same PTSD group. It does, however, not tell me like tonally where this lands. Just because these are so different. Do you know what I'm saying? Like Stars Hollow and Schitt's Creek and It Ends With Us and Eleanor Oliphant. The job of comps is to give me a sense of what I'll get. Like if after reading let's say, Eleanor, I want to read another book like that, would I pick up yours? Because that is a totally different thing from after reading It Ends With Us. So something to think about. I do I do like the creativity, so definitely points for that. My, my note about the plot paragraphs, which is obviously what I always obsess over, is that is the only thread in the story, the only will they or won't they, will the building stay with theory or will Joe's dad win? Because I like that as the big thread. But I don't, I don't see how there's like enough plot for a whole book based on this, especially since I don't get the connection to the dead body. Like, is the dead body related to her in any way? Like, is she a suspect in the investigation? Or is, is, could the dead body be someone in her family that they thought had disappeared? Like, it's a dead body, right? So it's a big deal. And I don't understand specifically what pressure it's creating other than the pressure of like having to stop the, the like the police starts an investigation so that creates complications so i would clarify that just in a way that makes it seem more airtight what you want to go for is that really like airtight plot escalation that makes everything seem completely inevitable you know that web effect of of course this would all culminate in xyz which i know is really hard to accomplish by the way so you definitely have my empathy um really like the the author paragraph it is like essentially a perfect author paragraph and I just, you know, really, really, really love the last line about someone who lives with panic attacks. I'm passionate about creating stories that depict the intricacies and range of emotional wellness. So I, I thought that was really special and sweet. And thank you so much for sharing that. It's, it's a really great query letter. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Jenny, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Yes. I can add some small things. I did think the comp sentence was a bit confusing and that... You know, the, but it doesn't really matter that the town could be located within between those shows unless, like what you said, kind of like the, you know, the question is, is the book like one or both of those shows? And so it was like cute, but it felt a little tricky. I would say I stumbled, this is so small, but I stumbled over chocolate artist a little bit. And I was like, is that just like a chocolatier or what is a chocolate artist? I think I either wanted a more familiar word or to know more about what that meant and the plot paragraph I think could be just kind of slowed down and clarified a little bit maybe broken into two paragraphs I think agents are always you know we're always scanning things pretty quickly so I think making it as easy as possible for us to just get an overview I never really care that much about like 
the play by play of the plot. But yeah, it's helpful to know like, is this, you know, is this a murder mystery? Is this, is it a competition between the two people? Like it just, I wasn't super, super clear. And then this last sentence, I was, I'm a little puzzled by where it says her golden boy, long-term boyfriend slaps her at a party, each now newly single forge a friendship that deepens to attraction. I'm actually not sure. I'm not sure what's going on there. I'm not sure if like, I can't tell if they're like the same people that are like somehow exes and broken up and also attract friends and also attracted to each other. I agree that the bio is good. I mean, I think you could include the author's names of the titles that you mentioned as well as the dates, unless they're like a long time ago. And then maybe I would leave out the dates. And I feel like I could use one sentence that kind of explains. It seems like she has some expertise, which is always good in parenting, maybe like mommy burnout, miracle equation, I'm not sure what miracle equation is, but you know, if there's some kind of expertise that she has, and then if there's any relation between that expertise and this novel, like that would be super helpful to sort of connect those dots. But I think it's, I think it's good. Wonderful, Jenny. Thanks. Cece, can you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? So we have the protagonist, that's Theory, in her kitchen making breakfast, which in her mental state basically means pouring Cheerios and milk into the blender and drinking it pureed. She's on the phone with her boyfriend who's concerned for her. She's obviously very distracted, and through dialogue, we find out that she's going to meet Tanya at the bank to ask for a loan, and if she doesn't get the loan, she might have to close the chocolate shop. That obviously comes from her grandmother and means so much to her. She does make a joke about maybe grandma will send me an angel in the form of someone who is just dying to buy this building off of me for a ton of money, and then clarifies that it was a joke because her boyfriend's like shocked that she would say that. And then she says, you know, of course I'd never sell. At one point, she says that she just needs to get through the holidays and then business will pick up. But then she kind of backtracks and says she's not quite sure about that. Noticing that she seems really distracted, the boyfriend asks her, are you sure you don't want me to come home? Because we know that he's in a foreign placement somewhere. And Theory snaps at him and says that, you know, he needs to calm down. And to herself, she thinks that his level of concern is actually keeping her frozen in her sadness, in her struggle. And then she reassures him that she does love him when there's a knock at the door. And we don't know who's at the door because that's all we get in five pages. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, what was your take on them? All right. I don't mean to be like the world's most nitpicky person, but I am going to be. The first line, how long is too long for love to feel bad? Question mark. And then we go to a new paragraph and it's all like a dialogue description. This is a matter of taste. So take this with a grain of salt. But I don't recommend starting with a question especially not a generic question, especially not a question that's not in conversation with the rest of the dialogue. And yeah, I get that like you could interpret how it is, but it's 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 too much of a stretch. We don't have context to understand why she's asking herself that. I just don't recommend it. So I would cut that. Choose a different opener. Your opener is so important. In terms of like things that could be improved, you can trim the dialogue. We're getting the step-by-step of what you're doing with the blender. We don't need that. You can c- compress, are my favorite verb. You can delete some of the dialogue tags and action beats. So for example, so he tries another topic. What's on your agenda for today? You don't need the he tries another topic because the dialogue is already doing that. So you just don't need these things. You're, you're using up valuable real estate. And I think that you're doing an 
excellent, excellent job of balancing inner life with dialogue. That part is just the balance is perfect. But you could go even deeper in the inner life, not in the sense of adding more, just in the sense of, for example, she places a smell, right? And there's a few mentions to that. And the mentions are always like, I still can't place the smell. Instead of repeating that she still can't place the smell, give us sensorial details on what the smell even is. I don't know if it's burning or if it's... I don't know, vanilla, or I, I have no idea. So I do like what you're doing with the inner life. I would just dig deeper and be more specific. My big picture note is that, so there's two actually. One, the whole joke that she does about, oh, maybe grandma will send an angel. Like that's that's too plot convenient. Don't, don't like remove that. Remove that. Let, let her be surprised by that. Because it just doesn't, like it's just too, it's just too coincidental. And in terms of how you're starting the story, you are starting the story by having her talk about her life to her boyfriend. It's not the most compelling way to do it. It's a conversation about a situation. I'd rather just have a scene where things are happening. So, for example, this would be different if she were calling him to ask him for a loan. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, this is actually the day where she's going to the bank, but she got advice that a loan from a friend is always better than a loan from a bank. And so, to his surprise and to her nervousness, she is asking him for money. That would be fine because that is moving the story forward. But a conversation where they're just like catching up about what's happening feels too much like a setup as opposed to a story. It feels like you're spending time setting up what's happening as opposed to spending time telling the story. And I just don't think that that's the most compelling way to do it. And I think that you're a good enough author to tweak this and to just start really in media res. And this was a really fun read. I just think that it's not the right place to start, at least not with the tweak. So yeah, those are my notes. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Jenny, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? I think the only thing I would add is like, I sort of liked that first sentence. How long is too long for love to feel bad? Like that's intriguing. But then I would agree, like, then I was confused because it doesn't, what follows doesn't really seem to relate directly. So, you know, I think the other way to go would be like, keep the first sentence, but then that second paragraph needs to follow from it and just tell us more, like, about what's going on. I love it when we disagree. I just want to very quickly say that because this is so subjective. And so it just gives authors, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure it some of, some of them are like, I'm going to pull my hair out because what's the right way to do it? But it's also like indicative of the fact that there's really no one way to look at things. Okay, so that's it from us for our special Books with Hooks. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. and We have bilingual friends and francophone friends, so it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously, and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference, and that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. My latest novel, The Witches of Moonshine Manor, releases on the 23rd of August, and I'm super excited to be doing a few tour stops over August to November in order to promote it. I'll be visiting Atlanta, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Milwaukee, and Boston, as well as doing a few events in and around Toronto. If you live near any of these cities, I'd love to get to meet you at one of the events. Please check my tour schedule on BiancaMarae.com for details. Hello, I'm Jennifer Kaloyaris, host of Books Are My People, a podcast for book lovers with book news, recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life. I'm an author, a writing instructor at UCLA Extension's Writers Program, and a proud book enthusiast ready to help you find your next great read. In addition to sharing at least five book recommendations in different genres, I also welcome to the show readers of all stripes, including authors who talk about their writing process, librarians, editors, bookstagrammers, and general bookworms, all eager to recommend their favorite reads. So come join in the fun at Books Are My People, available wherever you catch your podcasts. We've got two special guests today. One is Lisa Rivers and one is Kath Jonathan. 
It's an editor and author combo who will be discussing that process with us. I wanted to get in really early because Kath has only just sold her novel. It hasn't even been announced yet, so I can't give you too many details because that's not available yet. But here's the thing. Publishing moves at such a glacial pace that normally by the time I interview authors, it's pretty much two to three years after they were working on edits. And so they have pretty much forgotten how the edits went. So I wanted to get Kath now with Lisa, who she worked with on the edits, because this was extremely recent for them. So Kath and Lisa, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thank you. Start with you. So when you get sent a manuscript to evaluate, what is your process? Keeping in mind for our listeners that editors are just like writers, they're going to have different processes with regards to how they like to evaluate a manuscript, how much time they want to take with it, et cetera, et cetera. But for you, Lisa, why don't you give us a bit of an overview of what that looks like? Okay. Usually what I like to do is read it through once, start to finish without thinking about edits at all. Like not really thinking too much about individual scenes or specifics on anything, kind of just get like an instinctual feel for things maybe make like a couple notes on the side about like if I felt there was a part that if I'm weeping or if I feel like the pace dropped, I might make something generic, but I don't like to do, I kind of want to just go for a ride with the first one. Then the second round is when I really go through like each scene. And I feel like I like to like really go through and think about first the overall arc Did I feel like we had a goal? Was there like an internal thing? Was there an external thing? Think about like the main structure. I think last week somebody was talking on the episode about like the house. I start to think about just like the overall form of the story. If I feel like that's strong and I don't have any specific notes about that, then I go down into like the specific scene level and then I go through everything in each scene. And I probably read each scene like get a little bit obsessive about it. It might be like five times or something just to like, unwrap where I feel things if if there is there enough tension did we have a goal did it add to the story if I removed that scene would would it be missed in the book was there too over explanation of things that you know maybe left the reader feeling that they weren't able to use their imagination but they were kind of dumped on so yeah so that's sort of what I do but the first read is always just for the ride how did I feel and then I go through sort of like the overall and then this minutiae of the story and how much information do you like to get from an author first in terms of when they send you the work? Do you want to go in completely cold? Do you want an idea from the author, what genre they see it as, what comp titles they may be using, where they think the story might be failing or what specific advice they want? Or does that influence your reading of it too much and therefore you ask for that later? Okay, generally I love spoilers, but not in this case. Like if I'm watching a TV show, yes, give me every spoiler. This I'd like to meet with the author first before I start reading. And I like to ask them, okay, A, what are you looking for in your edits? First thing I want to know. Second, is there anything that you think, what's the strongest parts of your story? Where do you feel like the weakest parts of your story are? What is something that you think needs to be heightened or where it drops? So I do like specifics about not necessarily the plot. Like I don't want a spoiler, but is there a section like, oh, it falls flat in the middle. Or I, I know that maybe I have too many characters or, you know, or something like that. Or maybe 
I don't know, something specific. I'm not sure if I should use third person versus first or, you know, something like that, but I don't want them to tell me too many details about the actual plot because then it, it removes my element of surprise. So yeah, I, I want to talk more about where they feel they need the most help and what they want me to help accommodate sort of, or help them get to their, the best version of the story that they can tell. Okay, Kat, so now I want to chat with you about your process of working with Lisa on this manuscript. Could you just take us through the process of that, whether you did it all in one piece, whether you broke it down into quarters? Because again, you as a writer are going to find an optimal level of how you like to work with an editor. Every single writer is different. Some people like it all in one go. Some people like to break it down. So why don't you take us through what that looked like for you? So with Lisa, we came to a decision to divide the book into quarters. It felt much more manageable that way to me. And prior to that, I had been writing and revising and revising and revising the first part too many times. And then the second part seemed fairly manageable for me to edit and send to Lisa. And but then by the time I got to the last half, it was really tough. And so dividing it into quarters allowed us to really focus on specific parts that needed more work than others. And also, I think it allowed us to ignore the parts that we'd already been working on for quite some time. The other thing that we did that might interest you is that we made point form notes of each chapter, and that allowed us to fool around with different plot points. I would write out point form notes that didn't exist in the actual text, but that were kind of wannabes or wishful additions, and then we could just take them out. We also had a third component, which was we actually got together in person outdoors during the pandemic, and we had lots of phone calls. So then we had this great point form text to go through. And Lisa would say, I don't know if this is going to work. What do you think? If you always ask these questions, that's a bad example of the kind of Lisa question, but Lisa often will ask a question that really gets to the heart of something very quickly, especially the emotional heart of something. And then I really have to go back and, first of all, feel what she's saying, because I wasn't very good at that. Feel in terms of deflated, maybe because it meant taking out some section or just curious, like, oh, never thought of that. Let's see how that would work. Wonderful, Kat. I'm curious how you are able to process your edits. Well, how does that look like for you? So for me, for example, I get my edits back and immediately it gets my backup. Everything that is suggested, I change. I'm like, what the hell, man? Why can't you just see my brilliant vision for what it is and my brilliance for what it is? And then I mutter darkly for a day or two. And then I look at it again and I'm like, yeah, okay, crap, they're right. I'm going to go do it. it. How is that process for you? It's very similar. You know, I, I sort of have come to the conclusion that I have a process that I go through, which is almost like steps of, of denial. But the, the first step is usually, yeah, getting my back up, feeling humiliated or wanting to deny that there's an issue. And then I move from that towards, like I said, curiosity. 
And honestly, to get between those two points is quite a wrenching emotional activity for me. It's not something that I I look forward to. (laughs) It's not something that is pleasurable. It's something quite difficult. But, and this I've learned from Lisa, because I find Lisa so emotionally honest and willing to be vulnerable herself, that for me, what that means is I get that permission too. So I can kind of fall apart and go, oh, you know, I can't write. This is all terrible. I'll never be able to do this. And I'll go through all of those feelings. And when that stuff's done, then I come to this, oh, let's see if this will work. And sometimes it really does. And it's surprising. Or sometimes it leads to something that wasn't that thing initially, but it leads to something else that betters the text, that makes the writing better, that makes the character more true and felt rather than just something kind of thought, a thought in my head, if that makes sense. So, yeah. And then finally, I get to some kind of acceptance and rejoicing because going through that, it's very similar to going through a relationship, maybe an argument in a relationship where you don't know if you should go there. But when you do, when both of you do, it is almost always rewarding in the truth that you get to. Yeah, I love that analogy, Kath. And as well, I I think it isn't too much of a stretch to liken this process to the stages of grief. And that's not being disrespectful to grief, but we as writers have a vision for what we see our work as being. And when you get those notes back and when you get told this isn't working, that's not working, you kind of have to grieve the vision that you initially had or what you thought the piece originally was. And you've got to work through those stages to get to that acceptance phase and decide to work on it and to make it better. So Lisa, I know that this is something you are incredibly respectful of and very, very mindful of when you edit because you are also a writer as well. So you know what that feels like. And something that I love about working with you is how you don't try to sort of mold work into something that it isn't. You're very mindful of what the work is and you try and make it the best version of what it is without trying to make it something different. So could you give us an example of like the kind of questions and things that you might ask to push a writer to get to the emotional truth of something and to really elevate a work? Yeah, I mean, I think that I'd have to say that I think studying theater helped me get to the crux of character. And it also, I had some really good teachers who I think taught me how to, from learning from them, how to get the vision from the person rather than show a person how to do it. I've had different styles like that. And and that's what I try to do with, with working with someone with writing is rather than inserting myself in it, I found the best teachers I had in acting were the ones that kept questioning and asking you to delve deeper. And that's sort of what I like to do with story as well, is get the person to solve the problem themselves by the questions that I'm asking rather than me solving it. That's sort of the approach I take. I guess usually what I do is I'm looking in the scene. I always, I guess, try to envision it as a play sometimes or a theater, a movie scene. And I try to see what 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 am I actually watching in this scene? What am I feeling? 
I go through like a bunch of things like that, what is being revealed. And then through, through that process, I kind of try to think about what questions can I ask to make this scene stronger through maybe heightening the conflict. I'm trying to think of an example. Sometimes I want to dig deeper into the character's motivations. So I, I start asking a lot of questions. I like asking a lot of questions. And it's finally a time in my life where it actually can be. I know my brother-in-law, the first time he met me, said she's really nice, but she asks a lot of questions. <laughs> so this is actually a time when I can ask a lot of questions. And so I obsessively ask questions about character motivation, why someone's doing something, how can we dig deeper into this? Where is the scene peaking? Because I want to see some sort of momentum in the scene. So sometimes I want to ask questions about what are we building to? Like, I want to see some sort of build. So yeah, so that's sort of what I'm trying to do is just unravel the onion, I guess. And each time, I don't like to do a lot of line edits when I first edit, like if it's someone's first novel or one of their first drafts, because I feel like if I spend too much time doing a line edit, that scene might not even be in there. And then they're going to spend so much time obsessing over the words rather than the actual power of the scene. So I really love scene work. That's the thing that I love the most. So I don't know if that answered your question. If not, I don't know. But I actually, because I love questions, I wanted to ask you two a question. Now I'm going to spin the podcast on its head. I wanted to know when you first receive your edits, do you read the edits first and then take a break from them? And then like, I wanted to know what the process is for both of you, once you receive the edits and you're reading them, how quickly after are you going to go into trying to work them? Are you going to, pro how, what's your approach with the way the edits are, are given? Well, for me, I do read them immediately and, and you've used that peeling the onion analogy. And so I read them and then I cry, but I'm someone who work, who processes things very, very quickly. If I have a fight with a friend, I can move past it very quickly to get out to the other side. And I'm the same with my editorial notes. So sometimes it takes a few hours and muttering darkly. And then I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, OK, let me do this. Sometimes it might be a day or two if it's a really big editorial note. So if it's like you've got to change the entire structure or you, this character is not working in this dual POV novel. Like so the bigger the, the editorial note, the longer it might it might take me. Kath, for you. So similar. I credit Lisa with really toughening my spine. I feel like through the process of editing with her, I've come to be able to look at the edits and I can very quickly move through what I think of as minor edits. But if it's something like, do you really need this scene? Then it becomes something that I have to process over a day or two and I go through all those stages. But Honestly, from where we started together years ago to where I am now, she I credit Lisa with being able now to sort of yank it out, cut it in half, turn it upside down, and it all feels really quite manageable and doable, and it doesn't have the emotional weight that it used to for me. Yeah, very, very true there. And Yes, for our listeners, when it comes to advice, like, does a scene need to be there? It's so difficult because you might have spent two, three days writing a scene. So when someone says, does it need to be there? It's you're like, oh, man. But here's the thing that I do when I get that kind of feedback is I highlight the things in the scene that if I took that scene out would make the rest of the novel not make sense. There would be continuity issues. The reader wouldn't have the necessary information. And 
once I look at that scene, if there's only one or two things or three things highlighted, I realize that that scene has not been doing the heavy lifting. And therefore, that scene can perhaps be combined with another scene that's coming up that also doesn't do a lot of heavy lifting. So when deciding whether a scene should be there, that highlighting trick is super useful in terms of determining that. We don't have much time left, unfortunately. I could chat to the two of you forever. Lisa, how should our listeners know when they're ready to approach someone like you? Because that's a question we get all the time. How do we know when we've gone as far as we possibly can? And how do we know when we need external help? Yeah, I would probably say, I would say that there's so many, like everybody has different approaches to what works for them. But I would say you go through it, like finish your main draft or depending on what process you want to start at, like if somebody's halfway through and they want more like a book coach as opposed to an editor, then that's sort of a different story. But if somebody wants an editor, I would say you finish your main draft, you get to the end, maybe put it aside for like a little bit of time so that you can come back to it with like fresh eyes. Then you go through and do your own sort of analysis. But I think it's important to have like some beta readers, people that you trust, but not like only family and friends that love you and can only give you the like magic of, of, you know, loving everything you do. People that maybe don't know you as well, or that, you know, will be critical. And I think that the important thing too, is if you also maybe giving them specific questions, sometimes if you're going to get a reader to read your work, then ask them, okay, I want you to be a hundred percent honest with me. Was there a part where you fell asleep? I mean, <laughs> or you, you know, the pacing dropped. I think that if you give direct questions that could happen. So yeah, I'm thinking beta readers, writers groups, you're rereading it yourself. You're pulling apart everything, doing the scene analysis as much of your own work as you can, looking to see your stakes, read it out loud to yourself to feel the flow. Um, you'll hear the breaks in the dialogue, in the flow of the, the narrative. You can sometimes, when you read it, even record it. If you don't like doing that and you have a trusted friend to do it, that could also be a way to help if somebody would be willing to record bits of it for you and then you listen to it back. That also could be like a way of sort of doing it. But I think you want to try and have had other people look at the work before you send it to an editor to pay for it so that you aren't coming before you're ready and you're paying someone before you've had enough time to do your own editing. The one last thing I wanted to say is that Bianca and Kath are two people that I incredibly admire because what I would say is, yes, okay, writing talent is important, but really what I see in these two fabulous women is endurance. And what I see is the, the fight for something and the way that they take feedback and make magic and keep going is what makes an artist is endurance and fight. And what I see a lot of times is people want to sprint. And the thing I want to tell them is this is a fucking marathon, people. We are not doing the 100 meter dash. This is a marathon and you need to train with the hills. You need to train with the short distance. You need to train with the sprints and you need to do it all. It's not just one dash and then your book gets published. That's my final thing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Kath and Lisa, so lovely chatting with you. Kath, we will have you back on the show once your book is published, and then we can tell our listeners all about it and scream it from the rooftops. Thank you so much to you both. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. 
news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. 
they will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format, so if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.